Hey, this is Lewis Johnson taking my love of sports into the world of esports with my co-host Kyle Airy, and we're breaking down what's happening in the esports industry. We're talking with great guests, influencers, and most importantly, we want to talk to you. So welcome to All In with Esports. <clears throat> All right. Hey, how's everybody doing? Welcome back to another episode of All In with Esports. Lewis Johnson here. Glad you're back with us. Another great conversation on the way, I am sure. And of course, we want you to make sure you're catching up with everything we have going on here at the network, esportsfutureye.com. Get on there and see what's happening. Twitter.com backslash esports map. And of course, on Facebook, we've got lots of shows happening right now. Three, we just had a fourth podcast to join uh, our list of shows. I'll tell you about that in a little bit. So make sure you're tuning in and catching all those. And I've been getting a lot of comments from you guys about the previous shows I've recorded with some of these guests. And I really appreciate that. I love getting that feedback. You know, when I'm working in sports television out there somewhere, track and field event, college basketball, the Olympics, whatever. Yeah, I look at uh, my social media feeds to see what you're saying about what's happening in the events. But this is a different world. And now it is still cool to get that feedback from you. I love to know what you're thinking. And what I want to know most is if you're being inspired. That's the most important thing to me. So great conversations here that I hope are inspiring you. And this guest today, I have no doubt uh, that's going to happen. So let me start with this. Let me just throw this out here. I think that so often we as a society can get so caught up in these linear ways of thinking, especially when it comes to career choices, a career path. And look, we've got the generations before us that have lived a different reality. You know, you go to school, you get a job, you stay there for 30 or 40 years, you retire. And listen, there's nothing wrong with that. There are other ways of thinking. Oh, my parents live that way and it's great. But I'm talking to you, parents of middle schoolers and high schoolers, and I can do that. I'm qualified because I'm a parent of a father of two. There are just other ways of living life and, and pursuing that occupational reality. Look, I don't have the stats on how many people are still seeing their life that way, where you know you go to school, you get the job, you stay there 30 years and retire. And I didn't look up those stats on purpose because I've lived my career in sports and stats and numbers can oftentimes be presented in a way that fit the conversation or the attempt to persuade an audience to agree with the premise with that graphic or with those numbers that we put up or, or mentioned to you. Well, I'm not here for that. Okay. What I have always believed in is sharing the stories of the people that I cover and allowing their real life journeys to possibly move you, not necessarily persuade you, but to move you to think about other possibilities, a, a different way, uh, challenging those linear pathways of thought. And if there's any industry I've ever been around that is showing us that there are different ways to think about a career, it is esports. I have absolutely discovered that. And the crossover opportunities here are endless. Crossover? Yes, I'm talking about taking a traditional career path and meshing it or crossing it over into the world of esports. And I mean, even in the world of medicine. I am super excited today about my guest because he is a, an absolutely accomplished young man in the medical field, surgery to be exact. And his passions for gaming have gone way past playing against his brother growing up or his friends for pleasure. You're going to be amazed to hear about the potential for the skills of someone who plays esports and gaming and how they can apply that to even the operating room. 
And with that, I welcome Dr. Stephen Noble, who is a cardiothoracic surgeon. And a few weeks ago, he showed up on my Twitter feed. And sometimes you just can't explain these things. So I read about him. I sent him a message. And here we are today. Dr. Noble, how are you? Yeah, Louis, it's uh, great to be here. It's uh, truly an honor and a privilege uh, to be here with you and your guests, listen to the podcast, a uh, big fan of both uh, you and your work and having watched you growing up and, uh, and being a big gamer that I am. It's uh, truly an honor and a privilege to be here today. Man, thank you so much. Uh, the honor is mine. And I was just so inspired by what I read in terms of your the information that was on Twitter. And then I went to your LinkedIn and looked at what you've accomplished so far. And it is just amazing. So let's, let's deal with this first. Okay. I introduced you as a cardiothoracic surgeon. Would you explain to everybody uh, what that is? And then, and how did you identify that as some, that you, that's something that you wanted to pursue? Yeah, simply put, being a cardiothoracic surgeon is being a surgeon that treats the number one killers of Americans, heart disease and lung cancer. And so as a heart surgeon, one of the most common surgeries that we do is, is a coronary bypass or, or a bypassing the blockages in someone's heart. So that's the number one uh, killer of, of Americans and number one killer worldwide of heart disease rivaled currently by COVID-19. And then the mm. second is lung cancer or just cancer in general. So the number one cancer killer in, in Americans is a lung cancer. And so with that, treat lung cancer by removing the cancer, removing a portion of the lung, and typically can do that in a minimally invasive uh, techniques, something that we'll get into later. Absolutely. I mean, I, I just got to tell you, I wish people could see you because we're, we're just talking and I hope that they'll go and look up, look you up on LinkedIn, because if I walk past you in the store, let's just keep it real. If I walk past you in, in the mall, yeah. I would never guess that you are a, a, a surgeon who is doing bypasses on people's hearts and you're taking out cancerous sections in their lungs. I mean, you're doing some very important and detailed work, which I'm sure took you years to get there. And we'll talk about your educational uh, pursuits in just a minute. It's just amazing. Let's go back to gaming for a second as a kid, which I understand from our previous conversation was an earned privilege. And there's a connection to all this as we're talking about. So give us a sense of how you, your parents dealt with gaming early on, because it has a connection to what we're talking about overall. Yeah, so so early on, my parents very adamant about not having video games, and I think that the first video game system I can remember is the Commodore sixty four, and my father had bought the Commodore computer, and we were excited. My brother and I were excited because of the video games, and so the only two games that were on the Commodore sixty four was one game about brushing teeth, and the other game was like some sort of choose your own adventure. Mm -hmm. uh, my parents really felt that uh, it was going to spoil our brains and and just make us uh, you know spoil our brains rotten, so they wouldn't <laughs> buy us any video games, and so it was really our grandparents that got us our first video game sort of system or platform, the Nintendo Entertainment System. And so that really spurned my brother and I to really do whatever we could to, to, to buy games because our parents weren't gonna buy us games. For mm -hmm. us to play the video games, we had to make sure our chores were done, make sure our grades were good, and then we could play on the weekends. And so what that really forced my brother and I to do was figure out how we can make money around the house doing chores to raise you know, funds to buy video games. We end up, he, my sister and I, we end up starting a lemonade stand to really just uh, do whatever we could to, to, to get money to buy video games. And then as we got older, video games progressed, the, the platforms progressed, the Super Nintendo, then the PlayStation and all these platforms. But it was really that love to be able to play. And back in the day, it was just really me playing my, my brother. I mean, mm -hmm. that was if, if we were going to play video games, we either playing, you know, someone that you knew closely or you're going to be sitting up there playing the computer. And so it's truly amazing to see how it's kind of come along uh, this journey of video game. But it was really that thing of, of really trying to uh, 
create that entrepreneurial spirit, not being able to play video games during the week. And at the same time, uh, it helped me with my grades because the only way that was the carrot or the stick, if you will, for, for yeah. being able to play was uh, make sure I had good grades. Yeah, well, that's important for parents to set that to that line of discipline. But God bless the grandparents who say, come on yes. over here, baby, and I'm going to let you play the games here. <laughs> and then after you've broken the rules, they send you back home, you know? Exactly, exactly. So, yeah, you know what I got to tell you? I have to tell you, that's going to be me. That's going to be me <laughs> one day when I'm a grandparent, you know? <laughs> Don't tell them we did this. No. But that's so awesome. And it took everybody to make you into the gentleman that you are today and, and, the, and the surgeon that you are. Well, as you moved on through high school, you know, at some point you identified that you wanted to do something special in the medical field. So kind of give us a sense of, of your educational stops in medicine, which I believe started, uh, where'd you start at? Indiana, IU? And so I went to undergrad at Xavier University in New Orleans, right. Louisiana, HBCU. And so it really was, uh, my again, my grandparents, it was on the, the living room floor of, the, of, their, of their house that I realized that I wanted to go into medicine. It was really just a matter of being fascinated with the human body. I was always kind of fascinated with how things worked, wanting to know why people got sick, why this happened, why that happened. Mm -hmm. You know, it was really just that fascination of why things happen or why, you know, the human body would break down, why did my parents, my grandparents start to develop wrinkles, things of that nature. Mm. And so that led me to being on that path of medicine. And throughout high school, when you tell people that you want to be a doctor, they kind of put you on this path. The community puts you on this path. I had friends that would ensure that I did the right thing, wouldn't let me stray, you know, one side or the other. And that really led me to make a decision on where I wanted to go to undergrad. And I had the opportunity of, of going to Xavier University when I knew that I wanted to uh, go into medicine. Xavier reached out to me and I looked at the postcard, said number one in putting blacks into medical school, and it was in New Orleans, Louisiana. So we took a trip down there. I immediately fell in love with the city, with New Orleans. It's like a second home. And to be able to go to an HBCU was one of the greatest things that happened to me. There at Xavier, made friends for life and, you know, pleasure in a fraternity. Just had the, one of the greatest experiences, greatest four years really of my life as far as development and training and make, met some great people. I can recall being in the dorm playing uh, Tecmo Bowl and uh, Madden, <laughs> having those Madden tournaments. And uh, that kind of set my path to go to Indiana University for med school, Oregon Health Science University for my general surgery training, because I, I realized I wanted to be a, a surgeon uh, when I was in med school. And then during that time of med school, I took a scholarship in the Navy. So after my training in Portland, Oregon, went to 29 Palms, California as a general surgeon for two years. And then after that, went to the Ohio State University for cardiothoracic surgery training, and then went back to the Navy. Wow, that, that is some journey. And I, and I want to just remind people, if they weren't quite sure what you said about going to an HBCU, that is a historically black college, where you uh, made your first steps in medicine. And you mentioned pledging Alpha Phi Alpha. We are not fraternity brothers, but we are still brothers and others. I'm a Kappa, Kappa Alpha Psi Fraternity Incorporated. Oh, yeah, okay, yes. And uh, much, res <laughs> much respect to you. <laughs> yeah, happy belated Founders Day. Happy Thank you. We just had our Founders Day. Exactly, exactly. Yes, so we, we have that common bond in terms of pledging to fraternity in college. And that is, that is really something that makes our careers, our, our experiences in college so special as we pursued whatever it is we're after academically. Let's step back into this uh, moment of, of you doing your residency for surgery. And you're talking about a mentor there who was uh, looking at minimal invasive surgery. And in, that seemed to me in our conversation that that was like one of the first times you'd heard about this connection to surgery and esports. What was that all about? So I was uh, just blessed and fortunate. Uh, so I went back home to Portland, Oregon at Oregon Health Science University. And, and as an intern on my first year in general surgery training, I met an individual by the name of Dr. Don Spite, who's the head of uh, the OHSU simulation lab. At the time, he was he himself was doing advanced training in minimally invasive surgery. And part of that training was putting together a study as to 
what sort of predictors of skill acquisition does it take amongst trainees to really uh, acquire new techniques or new skills in, in regards to minimally invasive surgery. And one of the things that they looked at, one of the things that they asked for the participants, and as an intern, we all participated. One of the things they asked was, what was our background in regards to video game? You know, they, they actually asked you that they brought that up without being yeah. prompted. That came up. Yes, correct. And so because one of the things that it was looking at was those of us that had a history in playing video games, did, were we able to acquire the skills quicker? Were we able to uh, retain those skills? And how did that how did that kind of factor in into us learning new skills that some of us haven't been used to in regards to laparoscopic surgery? And what we learned was that those of us that had you know, prior skill of, of video game experience were able to obtain the skills maybe quicker, retain them easier, but that could be overcome with practice and repetition. And that's a key theme with both simulation, surgery, and video gaming, as we see it currently in this day and age with some of the platforms or some of the technology that we can use to, to, to hone and refine our skills in, in, in the surgical field. Wow. That is a, an awfully deep thing you just said. So I want to just take uh, you take us in the operating room. So if our, as far as I understand, as a layman to what you're talking about, the way that most of us would understand surgery, like when I had an appendectomy back in the 70s, it was a scalpel that went across the skin that opened it up. And then they went in with some tools and they cut the cut the, uh, the deal out and then sewed me back up. But now if you, someone goes and has a procedure for an appendectomy, that's probably a laparoscopic procedure. Is that correct? So it's going to correct. be tools that are going to be uh, piercing the skin as, yes. as opposed to this big scar that I have on my stomach. And then they will be removing the appendix that way. Is that what you're talking about? And then the skills of esports players that might be a, a little bit more adept to picking up that procedure quicker. Exactly. And, and so, you know, what you're, what you're describing as far as uh, traditional, you know, surgeon or surgery or open surgery was again, making the big incision, putting your hands in uh, the patient's, you know, body touching and, and feeling and, and using your hands and a lot of tactile sensation and mm -hmm. feedback with minimally invasive surgery or going to laparoscopic surgery. Again, we're using, we're, creating stab incisions and making uh, and using those stab incisions, putting in what we call trocars mm -hmm. or like little tubes or straws that then we can pass instruments into the, into the body. Now we're outside of the body controlling these instruments that are inside the body. I no longer have that quote unquote tactile feedback. I can't necessarily feel as well as if it was my fingers and, and things of that nature, but mm -hmm. I'm controlling these instruments outside of the body. And so technology has allowed us to take that one step further in regards to robotic assisted surgery, in which now I'm doing the same thing, but now instead of manipulating the, the, the instruments at the patient's bedside, I can be sitting in a chair at a console, basically manipulating what appears to be a joystick, very similar to uh, a PlayStation or an Xbox, con Xbox controller. And by manipulating a controller at the robotic console, I'm controlling an instrument that is moving and manipulating body parts, organs, things of that nature. And that is the, the preferred method in which I like to treat lung cancer by removing a patient's lung using robot. Using robotic. Now, let me let me take this another step further. And I'm afraid, I'm almost afraid of the answer to this one. <laughs> so you prefer, or you're actually using robotic surgery where you can actually use an instrument outside the body to control instruments in the body. And I'm assuming you're looking at a monitor to be able to decide what you're cutting or moving, what have you. So exactly. the next level question is, I'm assuming you're talking about doing that with a, a patient that's like a foot away from you. Is it possible or are we already talking about doing this with patients that may be in another 
hospital in another city in another state somewhere else? Is that possible? That is possible and it's been done. And so we it had, has been done. It, it has been done. And wow. so one of the first transatlantic surgeries was done as far as the surgeon being in one place and the patient being somewhere else. They use fiber cable to do that. Mm. Uh, robotic surgery has been quite around for uh, greater than 20 years. Initially, it was developed by the military. And what we saw was really the advancement or, or the evolution of robotic platforms basically evolving to what we currently have now. The hope is that with 5G technology, that we would be able to do what you're calling, uh, what you're referring to as telesurgery. The surgeon mm-hmm. being in one place, the the, the 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 patient in the robotic platform being somewhere else. And it was that initial design of the surgeon circling overhead in the battlefield, whereas the robot is down below doing operating uh, or doing the operation wow. on individuals in the battlefield that we actually thought uh, it would be, this could be done. Who knows, maybe we'll put a robot on the space station. So this wow. is all the things that are, are really being considered and, and, and really out there. And so it's, uh, it's very fascinating to, to be uh, alive in history at this point. Oh my gosh, that is so fascinating. So let me ask you this, if this is already has already been tested and tried, for you as a doctor, for you as a surgeon, how much do you think that your hand-eye coordination that was developed through gaming as a young kid and maybe on into your adult years, how much of a factor do you believe that has been in helping you move toward learning those skills and feel, feeling confident about operating on a patient either right there in front of you or somewhere else around the world? Well, I think it was key. I think it was clutch. I mean, I think that I really appreciate my parents for who they were, uh, who they are. You know, first and foremost, uh, my father taught me how to how to drive on a stick on on, on a manual. <laughs> so when I operate the robot, there's a lot of things about clutching, and you know, we use a lot of terms that if you haven't driven a, a manual car before, it may be a little bit different. So mm. that that helped in addition to video gaming. So I'm not used to, so I don't naturally just look at my fingers to see what they're doing. I'm look, I'm used to looking at a screen. I'm used to tracking a lot of information. And what you find is that the heads up display that that we see in in, in surgery. Is very much, it's very similar to the heads up display that I see my son in, in front of when he's playing Call of Duty or, or Apex Legend or some other game. Mm-hmm. Wow. So heads up display that might be on a headset you're wearing as or as well as something that's going to be on the on the on the monitor or the TV that you're looking at. Correct. So on uh, uh, both. So for the robotic console, what we actually do is we actually put our heads in a in, in the console, which is basically like putting your head in a, the Oculus VR. Mm-hmm. And so we are basically immersed in the patient's body. We get a 3D sort of view of what's going on. However, I cannot feel any, you know, I can't feel the heart. I can't feel the the, the lung or anything like that. So I, I try to tell people that the, the version of the, the console, the robotic device that we have now is similar to the PlayStation 3. That very, that PlayStation 3 didn't have the, 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 the vibration or the rumble stick or any of that nature it, that really, you know, had to evolve or the, over the several iterations or excuse me, the PlayStation 2. So the very first PlayStation didn't have that tactile feedback. You know, if you hit, we're playing Madden and you tackled someone hard, you could actually feel it. It's the same thing with this version of the Da Vinci robot. I can't, if I touch something, I can't feel that. So I have to use my eyes and other, other clues to see how hard am I pulling on the tissue? Am I going to rip something off? Am I being too hard, too soft, things of that nature. So wow. uh, that experience of playing, you know, your video games actually does, does seem to help. That, that is just incredible. And so you gave your time back to the ser- to the service to the Navy and, and thank you for your service. And without compromising anything that you've learned there that could be information that is not, you know, readily available to the public, what kind of, a, what can you give us in terms of your sense of what you were doing there for the Navy? Was this just traditional, normal type of uh, surgeries that 
that people within the military needed, whether it be hard or long, what have you, or, or could you have been involved with some other things where, again, this techniques, these techniques that you were using, along with the skills of the hand-eye coordination were, were important. And what kind, of, what kind of research and development are they doing in the Navy about this type of surgery? So a uh, great question. So part of it was uh, just the bread and butter surgery that we do right, as far as heart and lung surgery. So um, bread and butter surgery, huh? bread and butter. So bread and butter would be uh, open heart surgery, coronary bypasses. Some of the more in, in the Navy is very common for individuals to have what we call a spontaneous pneumothorax. Basically, their lung can collapse. Oh, really? And, and, that, and that can be because in the Navy, there's a lot of and in the military, there's a lot of young, healthy individuals that are typically tall, lean. And these individuals are kind of prone to developing or having what we call blebs or little bubbles on their lung that, uh, that can rupture or, or pop and mm. cause for the lung to collapse. One of my uh, most memorable cases was an individual that was an F-18 pilot. And he had this and he actually it, it actually popped while he was in flight. Oh. Uh, he, he didn't think much of it, end up going uh, to a bachelor party and then end up checking in with his field doc, got a chest X-ray that showed that his lung had collapsed. The, the patient came in and saw me. We did surgery to cut out that portion of the lung, kind of scrape up the inside of his chest to allow that lung to stick and not fall down again. Wow. Got, a, got a CT scan and showed that he had blebs on the other side. And so what I told him was that, you know what, because you have blebs, because you're a surgeon, I mean, because you're a, you're a pilot and he was uh, in class and he didn't want to get dropped and have to wait for another class. I told him that what we could do is we could do the same procedure on the other side, but this time I would do it robotic assisted, meaning mm -hmm. that I would make four small scissors in his chest and that I would be able to uh, do the same thing and take it out and that uh, he would be able to go home uh, in about three days. That occurred and he was be able to get back on the, on a flight status, flight duty within a matter of uh, months. And, uh, you know, he's uh, still flying presumably. So That's incredible. So you're saying that the surgery we did on him the first time was a bit more invasive. And then the second one was a, was a lot less invasive, which had a faster recovery time so he could get back to flying. Correct. Yeah. And, and it's amazing to hear that because you think about a Navy pilot and the amount of G-forces that they're up under in training as well as when they're out in the bird flying and that his lungs could then hold up to that after having collapsed. That's just unbelievable. And you were able to diagnose and then treat him in a way that was going to allow him to return to work. That's just incredible. What else can you tell me about what the Navy might be looking at in terms of surgery application? And again, how these skills of people like you who really know how to use their hands and hand-eye coordination, because we've got troops all over the world who could need help. And of course, I don't want to get into any sort of battlefield situation. That is, again, I have so much respect for, for, for what we don't need to know. But what sort of advanced thought might there be in the military about how surgery applications with these sorts of skills that you have could be applied in the future? Great question. And one of the things that at least they were looking at prior to my exit was humanitarian. So putting a robot on, you know, the ships that we call the Mercy and the Comfort, these are the mm -hmm. humanitarian ships that go out. And so when you have the robot and you're able to kind of send it out, you know, the thought is, is that with telesurgery or potentially even with the robot that we can sit up here and do things and offer treatment to, to, to locations and individuals that we otherwise couldn't do because of the, the skills that it takes to do those sort of surgeries. Yeah. So humanitarian missions is, is one in which we're looking at the applicability of this. As far as a remote telesurgery, we're definitely looking into that as as I consider as far as as I mentioned earlier thinking about the space station and you know I wouldn't be surprised if the if there's you know really thought and desire about looking at placing a, a, a robot on a submarine 
as we start to think about going into space, one place to think about trying to try some of these things out is in, in the ocean. And so in the submarine, a lot of uh, territory there. And so with that being said, the sky's the limit as far as uh, the applicability of that. But humanitarian missions is definitely one of the uh, areas in which we're applying the Exxon robot. Right. So I'm going to speak for everyone listening right now because I know they have the exact same thought that's going through my head. You, the doc, have confidence in what you're doing, but now I'm the patient or the people listening are the patient. And you're telling me that I'm supposed to lay on a table and you're not there. And then suddenly these machines begin to do what they're doing. I'm assuming that every patient you're working on has gone under. So they don't, they, they are not dealing with the fear of having someone operate on them who is not standing there. You get what I'm saying? Correct. And, and so that's one of the first conversations that, that we have uh, I, I hope. In, in the office <laughs> as, as, as far as the consent form. And so one of the first things that we explain to the patient is that although this is robotic assisted, it's not as if the robot is autonomous in, in doing its own thing. And so the surgeon is actually controlling the robot and we're there in the same room. We have yet gotten to the point in which we're at a remote location. So there are fail-safe procedures that occur that in, in case that there's a loss of connection, a loss of power, or any of those things. And mm-hmm. we drill those things with our team pretty frequently to ensure that everybody's on the same page as to what would happen in case this happens or in case that happens. Yeah. Uh, so part of surgery is always to, to go through those fail-safe maneuvers. Mm, that is something. And so the transition from the military back to civilian life in the ER as a doctor, what has that been like? And is there still time to play esports when when you're not being doing that and being a husband and a dad? <laughs> yeah, no. So I definitely time to to play esports. It's been a, you know it's been an interesting and, and sort of weird transition. And healthcare in the military is is one way, and then out here in the civilian world, it's uh, totally different. And so it's been good. It's it's definitely been a a great transition. It's nice to be back in my hometown of Portland, Oregon, be with family and friends. And so you know it's definitely been a transition of one in which I've enjoyed being able to explore these other passions of mine as far as healthcare disparities and, and esports, And so mm-hmm. I'm really enthusiastic about uh, yeah. taking the time out to discuss it. Yeah. Well, you've accomplished so much. And I often say that I'm not quite sure what success is. I don't think it's an endpoint, but it's rather reaching that marker, something that you said you were going to do. And then you reach that and you reset new goals for the next waypoint. That's kind of an aviation term, the next waypoint. Tell me why 2020 was a big year with some of those key goals that you had, starting with wanting to be an associate producer of a documentary that you did. Great. I, so coming up in, in medicine, it was always about, you know, friends, mentorship and those positive peer influences. And when I was fortunate to kind of identify early on what I wanted to do. But as we started to see the, the path and as we start to see some of these healthcare disparities, we realized that to really address a lot of these disparities, we need more black male physicians. Mm-hmm. And so to that point, I was fortunate and blessed to uh, meet a young man by the name of Dr. Dale Okudurudu, a pulmonologist out of Dallas, Texas, who has a great organization, Black Men in White Coats, and uh, spoke to Dale. And he had told me about his passion of, of uh, creating a documentary and really wanting this documentary to be something that would inspire the next generation of, of Black physicians. It spoke to me because I can recall the book, Gifted Hands, that, that really inspired me to become a physician. And so I felt that this documentary this documentary would be our version of, of, of Gifted Hands. And so uh, it was something that I was fortunate and blessed to, to, to sign on and be the associate producer for. It'll be released this year. And so 2020 was, was really great for that. Where, where, and where will be, people be able to see uh, Black Men in White Coats, the documentary that you helped with? 
So that Black Men and White, that will be on digital streaming. So they, they can go to uh, www.bmwc.com, I believe. Go to teamblackmenandwhitecoats.com, Dr. Dale Okudurudu, okay. to find out where that is. And then when it when it comes out, what I'll ask you to do is send me back a link so I can put it up on, on across our entire platforms. And then you were inspired to write a children's book. Tell me yes. about that. So, yes, the, the heart of the hero, the, the story of Dr. Daniel Hale Williams. So open heart surgery, uh, something that I do, I was really inspired learning that the, the story and the history of, of cardiac surgery in the world and realizing that the third person uh, to perform open heart surgery, the, the person that had the first successful open heart surgery was a black man by the name of Dr. Daniel Hale Williams. And his story doesn't get often told. And so when I really did the research and really learned about him, I just thought that he had one of the most fascinating stories in all of medicine and to really see what that individual, what that man went through during that time in the 20s, being the son uh, of, a, of a former slave, and then what he went through as far as being a barber, going to med school in Chicago, living through the 1918 pandemic, doing mm. the first successful open heart surgery, starting the first interracial hospital at the time, oh. team giving back. And then training the next generation of surgeons, I just felt that, uh, you know, this story need need to be told. And so, as a as a as a physician, you know, that was inspired by the story. It's been really fun to to create the story and with the help of my my kids and my nephew. And so, it's it's really been a fun journey. Awesome. So it's telling the story of Dr. Williams through it, it for children to be able to absorb, right? A children's book. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That's Basically, great. going through his whole life from 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 the beginning. That's great. And then also you mentioned this esports initiative, creating, I believe, a nonprofit. Tell, tell me about that. So Delano Gaming Initiative, really taking the um, the names of you know me and my kids as far as creating this uh, nonprofit organization, really looking to increase the number of young Black kids that want to go into the STEAM fields, science, technology, engineering, arts, and math, yep. uh, using esports as that vehicle and realizing that esports can be used as that character and other kids to think about other careers because as we start to see with esports there's so many things that can be done as we start to look to to be able to deliver this package maybe i can fly it you know via a drone and so to do that it's going to take that eye hand coordination by using esports and other avenues to, to participate we've seen drone technology used both in the military but also here at home as far as police fire rescue using drones, aerial coverage, footage, things of that nature. So using uh, esports as a field um, or as a vehicle to get kids interested in other uh, aspects of the STEAM technologies is really the goal of Delano Gaming Initiative. Awesome. And, you know, we'll want to know more about that. We had just a little blip and lost a bit of what you said, but I, I we got the gist of it. And you may know, and I think I talked to you about it, but STEM and STEAM are so important to us here at MAP Esports Network and Esports Future ITV, everything we're doing, because we want to be able to get into the community as part of our intention to really get kids to understand the value of STEM and STEAM, but also how they can not just play games, but learn how to create games and be involved with all the sort of technology and things that are involved, like, just like we're talking about here. So keep us in, uh, updated on that because we definitely want to promote what you're doing in that initiative. And then here we are in 2021. It's, it's almost crazy. I don't know what happened to 2020. I mean, it has been such a blur, part of it, a nightmare. It's been all kinds of things, but you have to still reset goals, right? And so you have done that and you're talking a lot about this year, health as wealth. And so give us a sense of where you're going to be moving in that direction in 21. 
Yeah, so you're right. Health is wealth. And so to that point, uh, one of the things I'm very passionate about is healthcare disparities in the black community. And to that point, using the, the places that we in the black community trust the most. And, and for me, that's really been barbershops and hair salons. My wife's yeah. a hairstylist. I came up in, in barbershops. And we know that our barbers and our stylists are those trusted advisors that we have in the community. In addition to that, that industry has really been the financial backbone of the black community. Mm-hmm. So uh, partnering and working with the Live Chair Health, healthcare startup founded by uh, a young black man, you know, we're really looking to tackle these healthcare disparities by empowering barbers and stylists, our hair care professionals, to get involved to, with the health of their clients because we know that health is wealth. And as 2020 has really shown us, there are significant healthcare disparities that, that we need to address in our community. And it's not just a matter of addressing, you know, just getting the numbers down, but addressing the totality of what we experience in the community as far as food deserts, housing insecurity, things of that nature, the financial infrastructure of our communities, all these things factor into our health. And so that's really what 2021 is really going to be about as far as working with live chair health and addressing these healthcare disparities, first and foremost, tackling COVID-19. Yeah. And, and, and as you mentioned, we talked to the barbershop is, is, is an institution. It's, it is part of our community. It's a place of honest and open communication. It is a place where we keep it real and we talk. I don't know about you. Let me see if I got you beat. How often do you go to the barbershop? I go to the barbershop once a month. Once a month, I got you beat. I'm in there every week, every week. <laughs> I got to tell you, yeah. for the last 20 something years, I have never left the Dallas Fort Worth area before I sit in Ken Cadillac Agnew's chair. I've been sitting in Cadillac's chair for 20 something years. And when I go to get on the air, he is the one who does that. But in that time we were there and Marcus and Jay, the other guys who were in those other chairs, we chop it up about sports, life, politics, raising kids, everything. We talk about everything and that's the place to do it. And I think it's a great idea to use that trusted location to be able to discuss things and maybe get people to think more about uh, a new healthcare model and things of that nature. So I think it's really awesome. And we're looking forward to seeing what happens there. Finally, Doc, I opened this show talking about uh, challenging people to think about this linear way of thinking in terms of uh, moving toward an education and a degree, and then of course, a, a career path. How do you, how would you like to challenge uh, listeners here from parents to students to maybe move past that linear way of thinking to the nine to five thing or whatever you want to call it versus trying to mesh a natural interest, interest or passion or love into potentially the world of esports, like you used your skills of hand-eye coordination from esports and enhanced your medical career as a surgeon. How, how can you challenge them here? So I think the, the first thing is uh, understanding what, our, what the passions are of our children. And how I got into esports was realizing that my son is very passionate about video games. And when we try to use it as a stick, we realized that he just wasn't the same kid. He seemed to get depressed and just mope around the house. But when we sat up here and really engaged with him and, and kind of gave him that sort of autonomy, it was truly a dramatic change. And fortunately, in this day and age, what we have seen is that some, some of those traditional old school models may not necessarily work. It's interesting that We've seen a lot of evolution and change in so many industries, whether it's medicine, technology, things of that nature. But education, see, you know, is the, is the same kind of the same standard. You know, we all go to school, we sit in the desk and the schooling of 2020 in some locations looks very much similar to the educational setup in, in, in the 20s and before that. And so we just need to evolve. And I think COVID-19 and this whole era of Zoom being online has really kind of challenged that. And do some kids fare better in, in an environment in which they have more autonomy? Or, you know, is it the traditional model 
best. To that point, college, you know, is not necessarily geared for everybody. I was blessed and fortunate to right. know that I wanted to be a physician. So going to going to college was uh, the next logical step after high school. But for those of us that really don't know what we want to do, you know, I think that trying to find that passion and understanding that maybe what college isn't for everybody, but could there be other avenues? I think esports, as far as some of the financial, technological sort of things behind it, 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 it does present an avenue for individuals to find success, similar to yeah. what you just described earlier. Yeah. That definition of success changes for each and every person. So the right. first thing is trying to figure out what is that picture of success for, for our children? Right. I have just been amazed by what I'm learning through this journey of esports about how it is growing so fast and growing all over the world. And and for me, what I've taken from my career and experience in television, especially covering the Olympics, is being able to meet people and tell those stories through their performance, because it's the stories of the people that will connect them to what's happening more so than the stats. That's just my opinion. And this show this podcast is exactly the same and what we have done here in my meeting of you and being able to talk to you is another confirmation to me that i'm doing the right thing because i had a guy like you on today to be able to discuss these stories but most importantly your story your journey through uh, life and how esports has been a part of it dr noble it has been an honor man it has been an honor to be able to talk with you and i've learned so much and i hope our audience has and i hope they've been challenged to think about the way they're thinking about pursuing degrees education opportunity how are you going to take care of yourself well there are lots of options maybe more than you think if you lift your eyes and esports is surely providing that so with that man i want to wish you a happy new year you and all the best you and your family and you got to promise now to keep in touch with me and let me know what's happening with all your initiatives so that we can cross promote them across our network. And we want to stay in touch. And if you've got some programming happening, some, some interesting things that we can run on our network, we want to do that. We good on that? Oh, yes, definitely. We'll do. Thank you. <laughs> okay, Very good. Well, once again, it has been a pleasure to have Dr. Stephen Noble here on All In with Esports, a thoracic surgeon. My gosh, there's so much more great stuff happening here on EsportsFutureEye.com. Make sure you catch us on Twitter, Facebook. We've got everything. Let me thank, of course, always Aaron, C and AJ at Innovation Media Enterprises. They're the ones who help bring our podcast to life. And I want to remind you not to forget to, to listen to our other outstanding podcast here. We've got The Future of Marketing and Esports. That's Rebecca. Rebecca Langawa, she is just as sharp as she can be on what she's doing there. John Davidson and the DLC Mic Drop Podcast. John has got great shows, great content. And then our latest edition, it's eSport E-Zine, like magazine, but it's E-Zine Podcast, hosted by our eSports Future Eye editor-in-chief, the one and only Chantel Boucher. And of course, all of us will be right here talking esports whenever you want to do that. We've got much more original programming to come across the entire network. And so for the moment, thanks for being with me. Hope you've been inspired. And let's talk again soon on All In With Esports. Take care, everybody. Thanks for listening to All In With Esports. Please remember to subscribe to your favorite podcast channel, and we would love to hear from you about this or other shows on the Esports Future Eye Network.